Well, this morning we're going to start, prim- or we're going to be primarily in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through uh, 28. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. But we're also going to be in Psalm 14, and that's a, a passage that I didn't uh, get to Miss April to print in the bulletin, but it's one that we need to look at together anyway. So if you want to hold your finger in Acts chapter 17, we'll look first at Psalm 14. Uh, but before we do any of that or we get to uh, the Apostles' Creed in general, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the worship we've already enjoyed. And as we open your word to understand your truth, that you would, we ask that you would bless us, that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it. And Lord, that we might be changed and leave this place ready to serve you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week I introduced a new mini-series in our study of discipleship in which we're going to focus on a, an ancient creed known as the Apostles' Creed. Now this ancient statement of faith serves as a guide of what all Christians should profess. It is a, kind of a baseline statement for what every Christian, regardless of denomination, regardless of background, regardless of culture, what every Christian should believe. And it's a very useful uh, statement, a very useful creed to memorize, as I said last week. And so what I think we ought to do and what I want us to do is during this mini-series on the Apostles' Creed, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together each Sunday so that Hopefully, by the time this is over, you will have it committed to memory and it'll be something that you can rest on and something that you can lean back on, as as I said last week, something that maybe, Lord willing, we don't have to face this, but maybe in our society as as, uh, resentment against Christians rises, that when we do ultimately face persecution, we'll have this in our minds that we might recite it and, and state clearly what we believe in that moment of persecution. Or even in our daily lives as we're struggling with our own faith, struggling with doubt, we can recite this as a means of reminding ourselves of what we believe. And so the Apostles' Creed is printed in the center of your bulletin, and if you would, join me in reciting it together. And I will note, as I did last week, that uh, if you grew up saying the Apostles' Creed in church, you'll notice there are a few things that are different. If you want to say it the way you grew up saying it, or, or if you want to join in what we're going to say as part of this, then, uh, then just note that there's a little bit of difference, or might be a little di- bit of difference in the way you learn it. So let's, let's recite it together now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
So I stated last week that the Apostles' Creed is structured around the Trinity. You'll notice as you read the Apostles' Creed that each person of the Trinity shows up in a major clause of the Creed. So looking again at what we just read, you'll notice it starts with, I believe in God the Father. And then a little later it says, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son. And then a little later it says, I believe in the Holy Ghost. But it doesn't just simply state belief in each person of the Trinity. It also gives us the major works or the major attributes of each person of the Trinity. It provides for us what we should believe about them. Each section states the major works of each person of the Trinity. We see that God, we see God as Father, Almighty, and Creator. We see the Son as in His incarnation, His obedience, sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension. We see the Spirit in His empowering works of calling out the church, of sanctifying us, and of ultimately glorifying us. So as we get into the meat of this creed, we start with the confession that we believe in God the Father. Now, I think that as Christians, we have learned to call God Father, and we've learned that just in the, in the uh, Lord's Prayer that we just prayed, our Father who art in heaven. We learned to call Him Father there, and we learn it if we read the Gospels. We see that Jesus is always calling God Father, and we might just assume, as, as we learn that and practice that, that the name of God is Father. However, Father is not God's name. God's name is Jehovah or Yahweh. His covenantal name is Jehovah or Yahweh. But his uh, Father is not His name, but rather a recognition of His character. To put it simply, and this is the main point that I hope you get from the message today, the God of the universe is a personal, spiritual being who acts in love, grace, and discipline towards his creation. I'll say that again, just in case you're taking notes. The God of the universe is a personal spiritual being who acts in love, grace, and discipline towards his creation. So it's worth noting that the creed begins by stating God as father. So above everything else that we want you to know, the the writers, the early church fathers, what we want you to know about God above everything else is that God is Father. So there are a couple of things or a few things that we we don't mean when we say that God is Father and a couple of things that we do mean. And so over the course of this sermon, I want to look at the three things that we don't mean when we state that God is Father And then a few things that we do mean when we say that God is Father. First, by confessing that God is Father, we are rejecting the idea that God, or rather the concept of God, is just a figment of the human imagination. Now there exists in our society a strong current pulling us towards a false religion. That false religion worships the gods of chaos and chance. Its high priests are called scientists, and its holy scripture is Charles Darwin's origin of the species. This religion is called scientism. It speaks of, in speaking of this religion, I want to make it clear that I'm not 
saying that science is a bad thing. I fully support the study of science, the exploration of the material world and the discipline of learning things through your five senses. I am, after all, an engineer, and engineers have to study a whole lot of science to earn that degree. Yet, science is only useful in the exploration of the material world. Science is based on what we experience. It's based on what we can observe in this world. But scientism is something totally different from science. It is the the belief that all truth is only known through scientific discovery. It is the belief based on that assumption that nothing exists outside of the material universe and therefore everything can be explained through natural material processes. And if it can't be explained through natural material processes, then it does not exist. So this false religion says of all other religions that they are just religions that have evolved over time in humanity out of a necessity for common moral framework, for a common moral framework. However, those who would claim this cannot point to a single culture that does not have a robust religious belief. They can't point to a moment in time in which humanity hasn't had a religion. Besides that, scientism fails to explain the entirety of reality. Now, certainly there are many things in this world that can be explained through natural scientific processes. There are many things, whether it be the way your digestive system works or the way uh, a medicine works or the way uh, rock is split by water or eroded by water. There are many things that can be explained by natural material processes, but there are many more, many more things that we just assume as part of this reality that cannot be explained by natural material processes. How does one measure love? What chemical process motivates a soldier to fall on a grenade to protect his comrades? What natural law justifies morality? If this world is only atoms and chemicals and hormones and flesh and blood, how are we to ultimately distinguish between right and wrong? If the greatest law of the universe is the survival of the fittest, then what makes murder and rape and thievery wrong? Why would we view self-sacrifice and care for the poor as good if all that matters is your survival? But the Bible speaks against this false religion of scientism. And to see that, look with me at Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, here in this verse, David says that the person who would reject the reality of God is a fool. Now, in the Bible, the word fool doesn't mean someone who doesn't have the capacity to understand, as we might say someone is stupid today. 
But rather, the word fool means that someone who does not understand the world, someone who does not have wisdom, someone who does not see the world as it really is. And isn't that ironic that those who claim to be the truly enlightened ones of our age, who claim to understand the universe in its fullness, are the ones who understand it the least because they reject the knowledge of God. And notice there is a consequence to this foolishness. Notice uh, David says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that a rejection of the reality of God leads to corruption and abomination. If there is no God, there is no ultimate judge. There is no lawgiver. And if there is no judge and no lawgiver, then there is no good reason to live a moral life. Now, do atheists live a moral life? Many of them do. Do agnostics live moral lives? Many of them do. But what I mean is there's no good reason to do it. There's no foundation from which to live a moral life if there is no judge and no lawgiver that dictates to us what it means to live a moral life. And beyond that, there is no common morality. There is nothing to unite us and in a way that we agree over what one should do or shouldn't do. And thus, you have the current state of our society today in which no one can agree on a common set of values. No one seems to agree on what is morally good and morally right. You have people who call good evil and evil good. And we as a society have come to the point where we can't even define the most basic elements of a society. We can't even say what gender and marriage and family are anymore. Second... The creed rejects the belief that God is bound by his creation. Now, most people in this world aren't atheist or agnostic. In fact, I think they only make up about 3% of the world population today. But that doesn't mean that everybody else is a Christian. Most people would view themselves as spiritual, quote unquote, in one way or another, though they still deny the God of the Bible. Many believe in some form of paganism, whether it's a belief in animism or witchcraft or polytheism. Now, these beliefs are shared. They all share a common element, and that is that God is contained by his creation or that the creation is contained within God. And so animists will worship trees and stones as though it is God or as though God is contained there. Or pagans will make an idol out of their own materials and their own hands and then commune with their gods through that idol. But the true God is not contained by this world. In 1 King chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon confesses, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. God is spirit which means that he is not made of the stuff of this world. In fact, he is not made at all. God is not defined by this world, but rather he creates and defines all things. Third, our creed rejects the idea that God is an impersonal 
force. Many people today, especially, treat God either implicitly or explicitly as an impersonal force. The ancient Greek philosophers viewed God as the immovable mover, a force that was drawing everything to itself. Islam teaches that God has no personal interest in this world, that he is removed completely from this world, and that he simply stands as judge, but he does not show love and grace and personal interest in the world that he has created. Many Americans implicitly treat God like some sort of mathematical formula. You know, people, you'll hear people say, if you put good in, you get good out. Or you might hear someone in America today appeal to karma, which is funny because they don't even know what karma is. And yet people are always referring to karma today because they assume that God is some sort of formula that if you do good things, then you get good things back. But instead of professing that God is a figment or God is an idol or he's an immovable force, the Apostles' Creed means two things by professing that God is Father. First, it means that he is a personal being. When we obey God, we're not applying a variable into a cosmic formula. When we pray to God, we're not appeasing an idol, trying to be loud enough to wake him up so that he might do something for us. We are interacting with a real person who thinks and loves and wills and delights and judges and shows wrath He is a real person who loves and interacts with his world because it is the world that he has created for his own glory. Second, the creed means that God is fatherly towards his creation. It says in saying that God is fatherly, we don't mean that he literally fathered the human race as the Mormons believe. And we don't even mean that he literally physically fathered Jesus Christ as the Muslims think we believe. Rather, when we say that God is father, we mean it as an analogy. Because again, God is spiritual. God is a spirit. He is not a like us in the sense that he is a gendered, real, uh, physical being that Uh, procreates, but rather he is a father in the way that he relates to his creation. So let me give you an example. When uh, I I am a wannabe woodworker, I, I like to make things, so I try to make things from time to time. I don't often succeed at making things, but I've made a few tables and a few benches and things like that. And uh, I have a style. Every woodworker has a style, right? You, you make things like uh, Van likes to make things out of cedar. And so he, uh, you have a style that you go for often when you're doing woodworking. And I, I like to make my tables out of oak because they're good and hard. My kids can't make impressions on them when they go to do their homework or draw something on them. Um, and I like to use a bull nose, if you know what that is, on the edges of, uh, of my table. And so I don't like a square edge. I like a bull nose on my table. And so when you look at a table that I've made, if I made enough of them, you would probably be able to say Nathan made that table because it's got my style. It followed a certain pattern because it reflects something about the things that I like something about my character. 
But can you say Nathan is a table? I hope not. Now, I might be as dull as a table, but you can't say that Nathan is a table. You can't even say that Nathan has a bull nose because his table has a bull nose. You might say I have a bull face, but you might not say I have a bull nose, right? It doesn't carry the the, the, uh, characteristic, even though that table reflects something of my character, it doesn't define me. Rather, I defined it. And in the same way God defines us, we don't define Him. And just because you have male and female, and you have uh, flesh and blood, and you have all those things, it doesn't mean that God is those things. But rather, the male and female, father and mother, uh, family reflects a character of God. It reflects the character of God. And so when we profess God as Father, we are not saying that He literally is a progenitor or that He is literally a Father, but that rather He relates to His creation like a Father. So let me show you what I mean by that from Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 28 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for uh, for we are indeed his offspring. So... From Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 28, there are three characteristics of fatherhood that are attributed to God that I want you to notice as we close today. First, in verse 24, Paul distinguishes between the true God and the false gods of the Greeks by saying that he is the God who made all things. It is a fatherly characteristic to create life. And God here, Paul says, is the author of all life. Now, it is interesting that Paul says that to Greeks who don't even really know where the world came from. Now, they have some myths and they have some theories about where, God, where the world came from. None of them match with the story of creation, but they really don't know. And they have sought for eons as Greek philosophers to understand the world and to explain where it came from. But none of them have had any good theories, any working theories of where, how the world was made. And so Paul walks into this place where all these Greek philosophers are, and he announces that he comes in representation of the God who made everything. He is the God who made the Greeks. He is the God who made the Africans. He is the God who made the Britons. He is the God who made all mankind. Second, in verse 25, 
Paul says that the Creator God gives life and everything to all mankind. So not only is He the God who made all mankind, but He is the God who sustains all mankind. Now just imagine that. God came and chose Abraham out of all the people of the earth. He chose Abraham. And He set His love and affection upon the nation of Israel. And He gave them their His laws. And He gave them uh, His sacrifices and he gave them all of the direction of who he was and the truth about who he was and yet it says that even while he's doing that in Israel he's still sustaining the Greeks he's still sustaining the Britons he's still sustaining the Africans he's still sustaining the Asians God is sovereign and sustaining over all this world and God is the sustainer and provider for all of creation like a father who cares well for his, fa- uh, for his family by working and providing, so God acts in a fatherly way towards his creation to provide all things. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and yet God feeds them. And lastly, in verse 27, we find that God is gracious to mankind. Paul says that he puts every man in his time and his place so that he might seek him, though he is not far from any one of us. You see, God loves humanity. He is not some removed deity far off in the universe who doesn't care about the world that he has made. He is not some immovable force who is simply making calculus based on the best odds that could work out. He is not some God of chaos that just chooses things based on uh, the survival of the fittest. But he loves his his humanity and he has created us for relationship with him. He put each one of us in our time and place so that we might fellowship with him. So just think about that. There are over 7 billion people on this planet right now. Probably closer to 8 billion people right now. There are that many, 8 billion different personalities, different ways of life, different backgrounds, different uh, uh, interests. There are that many different people in this world, and yet the infinite, loving, personal God desires relationship with every last one. And it is only an infinite, personal God who can have a true and abiding relationship with His creation. God has made each and every one of us, and He has made us for Himself. So friend, God has made you for himself. He has made you that you might walk in fellowship with him. And as St. Augustine said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. If you do not know Christ, if you do not know this God and Father, you cannot have a fulfilled and meaningful life. Now there might be moments of fulfillment. There might be moments of meaning. But true, fulfilled life only comes through knowing your Creator and walking with Him. And you cannot know Him fully and completely 
without His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You cannot know Him because that fellowship that you should have with God the Father has been broken by sin. But God in His love and in His grace has provided the sacrifice for your sins through His Son, Jesus Christ. So won't you turn in faith to Him today? Brothers and sisters, we serve a personal, loving, gracious God who walks with us as our Heavenly Father. We are called to fellowship with Him. So may we leave this place and walk in fellowship with the God who made us, who sustains us, and who pursues us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your love and your relationship with us. We thank you that you have put us in this time and place that we might know you and that we might seek after you. And Lord, we know, as Paul has already said from Acts chapter 17, that you are not far from any one of us that you are present throughout this world because you are above and beyond anything that this world could be, that you are the spirit who reigns over all things. Father, I pray that we would seek you, that if there is anyone here who has not trusted in Christ, that they would turn to him today and know him as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, that each one of us would walk in fellowship with you as we seek to live uh, for you in this world. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.